listening to the Bible 126 show. All righty. Well, we're in the book of Deuteronomy session 13. That's 13 of 16 sessions. We're in chapters 27 and 28. If you may recall, the book of Deuteronomy is actually a collection of three sermons and then some comments about the last days. And we, of course, are in the area of Moses' third sermon. Now, Deuteronomy can be outlined in another way, uh, a summary of failure in the first four chapters, the mutual love between God and his chosen people, and then uh, from 12 to 20, obligations of a God-related people. But 27 through 30, the area we're in, it's really the alternatives facing a God-related people. It's really a call for decisions, if you will. And then, of course, the last few verses will be arrangements for continuity with, with uh, Joshua and so forth. But uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27 is where we are. Again, uh, we've been following from the beginning the classic structure for treaties. As we look at the ancient records, we discover that there is a pattern that appears in most treaties. Most of them have a prologue. Then it's usually followed by some basic stipulations, then some detailed stipulations, then a document clause, some blessings, some cursings, and finally a recap. And this is a standard pattern of many, many classic treaties of ancient times. But it's interesting, it also forms an outline, Book of Deuteronomy, in another sense. And we, of course, are in this document clause from uh, 27 and following. So, so let's just jump in. Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. And Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you this day. And it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster. And he'll go on. This whole idea, Moses is with the elders. They've been together now since the Passover, some for almost 40 years, 38 years. Moses knows that it's coming to the end of his days. He's recounting with the people the principal elements of the law that was given. He's in Moab at this time. He's going to be up before, in a couple of chapters. He will uh, terminate his ministry up in uh, Mount Nebo, where he'll die and they'll bury him there. He was allowed to see from that hilltop the promised land, but not enter it. But he's using these final times to, to extract, if you will, a, a, a firm commitment from the nation. This is very typical of a situation where a king would often have a son that's going to succeed him. He would go through some ceremonial commitments from the people to assure allegiance to his son before formally passing the crown, if you will. It's a very similar kind of thing. Now, obviously, this is not a dynasty. Joshua is not his son. But in that sense, he is going to be passing the baton uh, of leadership, if, or if I can call it that, uh, to uh, Joshua. But he is... He is uh, getting the people to understand this peculiar relationship that God has ordained between himself and this and, and what we'll call the covenant people. And so uh, he's, uh, this is the beginning of this. Keep all the commandments which I command you this day, and it shall be on the day when you shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster them with plaster. They're going to set up stones, plaster them, and write the law all these things on the plaster. This was a very typical way of 
communicating and, and uh, manifesting, if you will, um, a basic foundational document in, e in Egypt this is, uh, and other ancient uh, places. Um, this, this is where we often get this idea of the pillar of law, is that the laws were written on a, on a it, it, like what you and I would look at, think of as a billboard. Remember, they didn't have technology that made printing or print documents that available. Everything had to be handwritten, that, that, such as it was. So this was a way for the, the average um, men on the street to get a chance to, to uh, be informed of what, what's going on here. So, see, now if you go back, just pause for a minute, or I should say in a sense, we're going to move ahead um, from Deuteronomy to Joshua. When Joshua does cross the land, he's going to follow and do what Moses has called to do if you skip if we're sort of skipping ahead if you will in a sense to Joshua 8 looking at verse 30 and 31 where it says then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord uh, the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal I want you to notice the altar is on Mount Ebal I'll come back to that point that's Moses the servant of the Lord commanded the children of Israel that is back in Deuteronomy where we're presently studying as it is written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lift up any iron, and they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord, and sacrificed peace offerings. Um, three times we read that's always unhewn stones. And this wasn't, I've actually had some commentators conjecture, well, that was because they didn't want them to use iron, because iron was a monopoly of the Canaanite tribes, they didn't have iron technology. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got nothing to do with that. Um, and it has to do with the fact that God did not want the altar made of something that was had uh, human effort on it. God's work, workmanship was not to be polluted, is the concept here, and by any of man's additions. Uh, the altar is there um, uh, as a, uh, for some very sacred purposes, and decorating it or shaping it and so forth by man's efforts was, was shunned. Um, and so it's a, it's a denial of humanism, in effect. Anyway, they, they, they offered there on burnt offerings in the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. This is Joshua in Joshua 8. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side, the ark on this side, the ark, excuse me, and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, which as well as the stranger, as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim, half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. We're, this is where Joshua is doing it. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy, and we're going to see how they actually, there's some interesting aspects to the arrangement here. But uh, uh, finishing the Joshua passage, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings, the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. How interesting it is that Joshua was diligent in reading the word to his people. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that they are to, they are to read publicly the entire book of the law, every um, Feast of Tabernacles. During the 200 years following Joshua, in the period of the time of the judges, they failed to do that. And that's one of the contributing reasons why the whole book of Judges is a concatenation of failures, one failure after another, uh, because they departed from the word. If they had, 
if they had followed those procedures, once a year they would be reminded of the things that God had called them to do, which they, and because they failed to do that is the reason they have all these troubles uh, in, uh, in the book of Judges. And it's interesting, uh, we presented at the recent conference there in Colorado Springs an interesting analysis on an update on current, the current Israel problems. But we started by giving a geographic summary of the book of Judges and highlighted the fact that the very regions that were the troublesome regions that, ju- that uh, the people in Judges did not adequately deal with are the same regions in which are their, their, their enemies today, the Golan Heights, the so-called West Bank, and uh, the Gaza Strip. And uh, so it's interesting that these things have a long, long history. But let's get back to Deuteronomy uh, 27. In verse 3, Moses continues, And thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee. So these are the instructions that Joshua, that we looked ahead, will will follow when, when they do cross over into Canaan. In verse 4, Therefore it shall be when ye are gone over Jordan that ye shall set up these stones which I command you this day in Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. The significance of this whole act of this uh, really twofold. One is it's an intention to create a monument that will testify to God's faithfulness in bringing them to the land. That was his, 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 uh, his promise. Um, it says... Uh, you know, as the Lord, your God, as the Lord, the God of your fathers promised you. Well, that's exactly what they're trying to demonstrate here. God promised, God performed. Now, the last part of verse three: that as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. In other words, this is a God delights in making and keeping His promises. And that's a distinctive of the God of the Old Testament. Um, the the Muslim concept of Allah is a, a God that can do anything. He's capricious. He's un, uh, unpredictable. And that's just the opposite perspective that, that, than the one that God prides himself in in the Old Testament. He delights in making his keeping his promises. Now, Mount Ebal is about 35 miles north of Jerusalem, at the base of which is Shechem, a very important city we'll be looking at in more detail. But there's two mountains, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim will be where they're going to do the blessings, and Mount Ebal, the curses. And it's, they sort of make an amphitheater there. And uh, what's interesting is the altar is Mount Ebal, and that's very significant because the altar is not a place of blessing. The altar is a place that deals with the curse. The reason that we're not under the curse is because of the sacrifice that was made on the altar. And the altar, of course, is just uh, anticipatory of the ultimate sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross. But that, uh, that is to pay for the curse, to pay for the, 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 uh, the failures and so forth. Okay. Um, the city of Shechem, which is the base of both these mountains in effect, is a very famous city. That's where Abraham built his first altar some 600 years earlier. And uh, that's also where Jacob, when he was uh, fleeing his uh, uncle Laban, that's where he carried uh, Laban's teraphim. Remember those, the, the whole thing about the household uh, inheritance symbols, if you will. Uh, stolen goods, if you will. He unknowingly uh, left with those. Where Joseph sought his brothers before going to Dothan in that epic incident. And, of course, where he was subsequently sold into slavery. And, by the way, he's also that's where he's buried, even to this day, in Shechem. 
That's where Jacob dug a well, and that also becomes very significant because that's where Jesus met the Samaritan woman in John 4. And uh, so it's interesting that this well was between that Shechem, therefore it's between Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which is also a point of dispute among the Samaritans. Because the Jews say you worship in Jerusalem, the Samaritans had a different view, of course. And it's interesting, as the woman confronts Jesus and she realizes she's got what apparently is a prophet or better, she, that's the first question she wants to ask. Where is it proper to, to worship? And Jesus points to neither one, but points to himself. And that's very significant. Many people miss that in, in, in John 4. And uh, so, and, but, but he does endorse that the salvation is of the Jews and so forth. So anyway, let's move on here in verse 5. There shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. And then again, there's this whole emphasis of it not being uh, 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 polluted or uh, contaminated by human effort. It's, it's God's altar. And uh, thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God, and thou shalt offer peace offerings, and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. So the, uh, the, uh, the whole idea of the altar being on Mount Ebo is to identify it with the, as, a, as a resolution of the curses. And uh, this is also, uh, um, by the way, this whole business of iron tools and so forth, not, not, not using tools on them, is, uh, was specified in Exodus 20, verse 35. But it's echoed several times in the Old Testament. And Moses continues, verse 8, And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Boy, that must have been quite a project. Because that's a lot of writing. The Hebrew is very dense, by the way. Um, when you see an interlinear Bible with the Hebrew and then the English translation under it, you'll discover that the Hebrew words are spaced out. And it takes a lot of English words to mean the same thing. So Hebrew is very dense because it's uh, been designed to be bandwidth compressed. There's no vowels and so forth. But anyway, um, moving on. And Moses and the priests and the Levites spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed. And hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. And the rest of these next few chapters is going to detail out what that means. Thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. That's, that carries some incredible blessings, but it also imposes some obligations. And we want to understand those. Verse 10, Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, And these shall stand about Mount, <coughs> upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. And he lists then six of the twelve tribes, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. Now, these are, there are six tribes on each one, and, and uh, it's just, this is ceremonial. It's not like they're going to be cursed. They're, they're participating in a ceremony here. But to get a little more understanding here, you might want to refresh your memory, because this is, worth, this is good, a good point to review what we call the patriarchs. Abraham, of course, um, married Sarah, but he also, because she uh, hadn't yielded, uh, took Hagar, her handmaid, through whom he had Ishmael. We all know that story. But ultimately, and according to the promise that God gave Sarah, he, she supernaturally born Isaac, Itzar. And uh, <laughs> the word means laughter because she 
when she heard that she and Ed Hunter was going to have pleasure, she chuckled, and, and <laughs> the Lord heard it. And that's all a very colorful event occurring in Genesis 18. But um, Isaac, of course, uh, marries Rebecca a, a, and uh, has both Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn, but sold his birthright to Jacob. You all know the story about the porridge. But Jacob then becomes the father of 12 sons. Leah, he, he, he loved Rachel the most, obviously. He loved her more than life itself. But Leah was the, the first bride, if you will. And she had, her firstborn was Reuben, then Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel upset because she could not bear. But then Rachel gets the idea, well, gee, if she can't bear, it was the custom in those days to use a surrogate um, handmaid, a, a surrogate wife, if you will. Let her, he gave, uh, she gave Jacob her handmaid, Bilhah, who had Dan and Naphtali. And uh, about this time, Leah thinks, see, that looks a pretty good idea. She has a handmaid, too. So she has a couple of sons by Zilpah, her handmaid. And about this time, God blesses Rachel, who has Joseph. Joseph was very, very... Because he was the son of Rachel, he was the favored of Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and that was very conspicuous. So Joseph becomes very favored and thus gains the ire of his brothers, who ultimately take advantage of him and sell him into slavery, which leads to the whole episode in in Egypt. You know the story. Rachel... uh, uh, Then meanwhile, Leah bears uh, two more, Issachar and Zebulun. And uh, pretty soon, a little later, uh, Rachel bears Benjamin and dies in childbirth. And uh, the, the tomb of Rachel near Bethlehem is one of the very revered Jewish sites. But when you look at seniority here, you'll find that the, the ones that are considered the most senior are the ones of Leah and then Rachel, because they're both the, natural, the real wives, and then the handmaiden concubines or whatever you want to call them, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah. What clouds this a bit, though, is Reuben gets himself in trouble with incest and loses his position as the firstborn. He was the firstborn son of Jacob, but he blows it. And uh, uh, Simeon and Levi also get in trouble over the Benjamites. So it turns out, by if you follow through Genesis, you'll discover that Judah ends up emerging as having the rights of the firstborn, and that leads, of course, to the whole story of David and so on. Well, with all that background, you see, oh, and by the way, Joseph, the favored son, he has, when he's in Egypt, two, two sons by his Egyptian wife, Manasseh and Ephraim. What's a very important thing to understand, when Joseph and the family finally come down there, Joseph, as the grandfather, blesses the two sons of Joseph, he actually is adopting them as his own. But he adopts Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, which upsets Joseph because that wasn't the order they're born, but Jacob knew what he was doing because that's what God told him to do. But what this gives you, if you look carefully, this gives you 13 tribes because Joseph is in, in, two, in two parts, if you will. So you can always leave one out and still have 12 to put in a list. There are places like in the march, the military march that Levi is not in and you still have 12 tribes. Well, how do you do that? By splitting Joseph into two. If you want all of them, you count the, Joseph, count the tribe of Joseph as one. But if you have an occasion like in Revelation 7 to, to drop out the tribe of Dan for some reason, that's a whole other study, we'll get into that now, um, you can do that and still have 12 because you just split Joseph into two. In fact, in Revelation 7, 
The tribe of Ephraim isn't mentioned either, but it's there because the tribe of Manasseh is mentioned in the list and then later the tribe of Joseph. Well, what's left of Joseph taking away Manasseh is Ephraim. It's as if the Holy Spirit dropped Dan out for his reasons and also gave Ephraim sort of a non-mention as because they were both instrumental in idolatry entering the land. That's a whole background story there. But with that background now, see, the Reuben was the natural heir, but he was a disavowed because of the relationship with his father's concubine. Simeon Levi uh, did, a, had a, did a huge crime at Shechem, a uh, very brutal thing. And so Judah was next in line. So, and, of course, Jezebel, jo, jo, uh, Jacob, Joseph was favored as, as uh, Rachel's firstborn. So that will show up as you go through the Scripture. Well, about Gerizim, we have the Mount of Blessings with Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And we have Mount Ebal of the Cursings. Well, find it, it's clear that the first four are Leah's sons, and the next two are Rachel's, uh, as, as in terms of their uh, seniority or favorite, favorite position. Reuben and Zebulun next. Reuben, although he is firstborn, he was, as I say, dis, uh, uh, disavowed because of the incest. And that left the, the sons, Gad and Asher of Zilha, Dan, Dan and Naphtali of Bilha, uh, the, the, the sons of the, of the concubines. So, so that's the, the, the order there. Uh, the favored ones being representing the the blessing side of this procedure, and the other six the cursings. So, so we move on. Um, we're going to see in chapter twenty-eight um, matching sets of six blessings and six curses, uh, and so um, uh, the and these, of course, will be they're, they're, they're being recounted here by Moses. But these are all instructions of what they're going to do under Joshua when they do enter the land. First one, cursed be the man. The Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Recognize this is Moses giving their instructions. They'll follow this liturgy under Joshua when they get into the land. But it's interesting, the very first one, it's very, very clear See, the whole theme of the Deuteronomy is the love of God towards his people and, and the appropriate response of the people for that love, to love him wholeheartedly in return. If you're going to love God wholeheartedly, then you cannot allow that devotion to him to be clouded by allowing any other worship of any other God. What's often not clear, you know, we talk so much about the northern kingdom after the Civil War. The northern king, kingdom went in idolatry. It's not as if that's all they did. They also had a token observance of uh, Jehovah, but uh, it was meaningless because it was contaminated with idol worship. And so part of what we're dealing with here is, is the total rejection, the not, not tolerating, not allowing uh, any form of idolatry in their, in their, in their, uh, in their life. And that's what's, that's what's involved here. Next one is, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father's mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. All of these echo, of course, the Ten Commandments, one way or another. Now, there's 12 curses here we're going to see. Sins of idolatry in verse 15. Sins against fellow men, verse 16 through 19. Sexual sins, a couple of verses. Guilt and bloodshed. And then a concluding curse in verse 26. That, that's the quick glimpse here. Continuing verse 20, chapter 27, verse 17. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. That was a form of stealing. That was like moving a boundary. That was like stealing land. All the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger. 
the fatherless and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. So he's asking for a commitment at each, at each step of this review. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, because he uncovered his father's skirt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with any manner of beast. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. God, very anxious to preserve the integrity of the family. Boy, if we could have learned this in our culture. Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that taketh reward to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And uh, so, it's interesting... This last verse, verse 26, is one that Paul uses in his, in his epistle to the Galatians. In chapter 3, verse 10, we often quote it. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Paul making the case that you cannot achieve righteousness um, by the law. Because if you're guilty of any one part, you're guilty of all of it. And that, that's exactly what verse uh, uh, 26 said. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And that's the way Paul uh, has, uh, interpreted that, that verse. Now, it's interesting. Paul goes on, of course. Let's not leave it there. In Romans 3.24, he says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. This is what, what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, solved God's predicament. We always think of it as solving our predicament, because certainly it does, because it's through Christ paying our way, we have access to the Father. But there is a sense in which Jesus also achieved a, a gigantic, um, solved a, a gigantic predicament for the Father. Because the Father loves us, but was in the awkward position of having to judge us. But Jesus paid the price to make it possible for God to, to um, extend his grace to us because that, 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 that price had been paid. And that would, that way it satisfied God's holiness, his righteousness. That's, a, that's, a, that's the, whole, the whole book of Romans. It's really certainly the first half of the book of Romans emphasizes. Also in Ephesians, you all know this verse, but it's important to keep it in front of us as we start talking about the law so we don't get carried away about its impact on salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift. That is the faith, is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God saved us, but he wants all the credit. Trying to add to it is blasphemy, because it gives man an occasion to boast. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. This was the watchword of the Reformation. Uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves. It, that is the faith, is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay. Well, let's get through Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the cursings. That was just the warm-up, gang. We really, we really have, a, a, again, as I say, a treaty structure here. And we're moving down now to the blessings and the cursings of this treaty structure. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, 
that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And so this is an incredible, awesome commitment that the God of the universe has singled out a people to be a covenant people. And uh, their obligations to him is to do what he asks, to, follow, to do his will. And if they do, they observe and to do all his commandments, then he, God will elevate them above all the nations of the earth. Has God elevated them above all the nations of the earth? Well, there was a time for a short time he did, but uh, they didn't follow his commandments. We're going to look at that more closely as we go here. All these blessings shall come up on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. These six blessings are paralleled by six curses in, uh, later on in verse 16. But uh, the, the, even, even the rhetorical style will, will be parallel to all this. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command this, the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thy hand unto, and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now this wasn't um, unconditional. This is all conditioned upon them loving him enough to live their lives according to his will. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself. As he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways, and all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. We see that, uh, elements of that, in Jericho. Rahab had heard the rumors. Rahab risks her life to hide the spies because she ingratiates herself to these people because she's terrified. She's She's heard the stories of Egypt and so forth. And so clearly there's a, a, maybe some, obviously a minority view, but at least she, uh, uh, that, that, that caused her to, uh, to uh, avoid the des destiny of her friends and neighbors in Jericho as, 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 uh, as the capital of the Amorites and the first target of Joshua and his, his, uh, his men. So... All the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and, shall, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. See, there again we see, see all, the undercurrent all through here is God's promises. The Lord, the God of the universe, swore an oath. And swear unto thy fathers to give thee. And the Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in the season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. They'll be the creditor nation. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, 
and thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. This is conditional upon obedience. That's the other undercurrent issue all the way through these things. Verse 14. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Now this, is a, this theme is continually hammered all through Exodus and all through the Torah and so on because you and I probably do not have the capacity to imagine the pagan culture that was extant in those days. Um, very licentious, obviously very, by definition very, very pagan. And, uh, and yet, as we study that, it's disturbing to see the parallels today. And I think one of the realities we need to recognize is the heritage that many of us take for granted of, of, the, of this country uh, is, uh, is pretty much a thing of the past. As we watch the, this, uh, these decisions about the Ten Commandments being removed from the courts of law, just as a historical document, let alone its, all the other implications. Um, this is a, uh, is, is, uh, these are signs that we should recognize of the times in which we live. This is the culture speaking. This, is, this, spe- this speaks to the spiritual bankruptcy of the judges. This speaks to the spiritual bankruptcy of some of the denominations that, are, that haven't got the biblical discernment to uh, forego ordaining sexual perversion as, 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 as an as a, uh, uh, officer of the church. Um, on the one hand, we're shocked. On the other hand, it's, 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 you can almost applaud the clarity because the, the, the signs are clear. We need to recognize that we, too, are being plunged into a pagan culture. And uh, that's what God would, what would want us to be distinct from. And uh, one of the things that echoes all through here, I mentioned, we talked about it last time a bit, but I'll mention it again, and that's the second commandment. Thou shalt not take uh, second, or, yes, a third, whatever. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I don't believe that has anything to do with swearing. That has to do with taking the authority, the image, the reputation of God upon your shoulders. If you're called by God's name, you don't want to take that in vain. If you're called by God's name, you have incumbent upon you a, an obligation to do Him honor by the way you conduct yourself. And if you're called by God's name and fail to do that, that's breaking that uh, commitment of his. And so, um, and that's also undergirding all through here because God is expecting Israel in exchange for his uh, 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 blessing of, of the nation to be his representatives and to represent him clearly. And uh, so... Thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or the left or to go after other gods and serve them. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. You've had the blessings. Now he's going to recount a series of curses that are in parallel. If you, if you lay this all out, they're rhetorically uh, uh, parallel to the ones we've just read. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall, thy bas- uh, shall be thy basket and thy store. Verse 17. Verse, uh, verse 18. 
Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. And the Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, or consternation, whatever, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand for, uh, unto for to do. Until thou be destroyed, until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make pestilence cleave unto thee, until he have consumed thee from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption, and with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perished. This, this, other, this phrase that echoes through here about four or five times is, uh, until thou be destroyed. And um, that is the final stage of each of these diseases. We could go through and talk about some of them, many of them you know, characteristic of their experience in Egypt. But basically, basically the goal will be their destruction. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be as brass. Heaven is pictured here as the sky where the rain comes from. The, rain, the sky is going to be shut, so to speak, from them. The heaven that is over thy head shall be as brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be as iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. There's that phrase again. And uh, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one, may, one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And thou shalt be removed unto all the kingdoms of the earth. That's a prophecy. Because indeed they were. We call it the diaspora. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. You know, it's interesting. The whole idea is the, the, the idea of the curse is to reverse God's order. God gave man rule in Genesis over the beasts of the earth. And uh, that's echoed not only in Genesis but in some of the Psalms. And if God, if man insists upon worshiping the beasts and such, God will turn it upside down where the beast will destroy the man. That's part of the, this curse is like for like. It's, it, 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 in the, it, it, it's not obvious, but it's, it's, I think it's part of the intent. And the, the, uh, it's interesting that the doom of the wicked in an eschatological sense, what you're looking, whether you're looking at Ezekiel 39... Or whether you're looking at Revelation 19, one of the idioms there of the destruction of the wicked is that the birds come and feast. See, the imagery there, again, is that the, 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 the very beasts and animals that man was to have dominion over are the ones that God uses to destroy him. If he wants to worship him, that's... You see, Thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. So this is a, there's an eschatological overtone here that picks up the same imagery. When you read Revelation, it will read very different, differently to you if you really understand your Old Testament. What was the um, punishment for blasphemy? Anyone? Stoning, right. And what's the climax in Revelation where they have stones, these 90-pound hailstones fall upon 
the earth dwellers. The book of Revelation has two groups of people, the, the believers and the earth dwellers, the, those that dwell on the earth. That phrase, you need to understand, that phrase is talking about unbelievers that are dwelling on the earth rather than the, their heart's not in heaven, their heart's in the earth. And, and uh, in, in the context of Revelation, they're the bad guys. And uh, they're clobbered. Again, they're stoned. It's, the, it's, it's an application of the very idioms that um, are emphasized throughout the Old Testament. And uh, same thing, this issue of the fowls of the air and so forth. Uh, you'll notice in, both in the, uh, the uh, Ezekiel 39 passage and Revelation 19, there's a couple of others, I think, too, that have the same, same phraseology. Well, moving on to Deuteronomy 28, verse 27. The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and with emeralds and with the scab and with the itch and whereof thou canst not be healed. So these are all kinds of things. I won't get into the hemorrhoid thing. That's uh, one of the funniest chapters in the book of Judges, but I'll let you look it up. It's <laughs> every time I see it. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. But obviously these are all forms of... of, of um, Blights that will uh, that, uh, that will be upon them. The Lord will smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Now, I'm going to come back to this blindness thing. That's going to be that's a prophecy too. But let me just go on here for now. And thou shalt grope at noonday, as the blind gropeth in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt not be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her, and thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shalt not gather the grapes thereof. And of course, this is a prophecy. This happened to them, of course, especially in the Babylonian captivity. Thine ox shall be slain before thine eyes, and thou shalt not eat thereof. Thine ass shall be violently taken away from before thy face, and, thou sh- and shalt not be restored to thee. Thy sheep shall be given unto thine enemies, and thou shalt have none to rescue them. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in thine hand. The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always. So thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot to the top of thy head. You get the impression that God is being, he's, he's, he's using every rhetorical device imaginable to get his point across. You don't want to go this way. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about Zedekiah. Uh, Zedekiah was the last of the kings of the southern kingdom. A century earlier, the northern kingdom got wiped out by Assyria. The southern kingdom went from bad to worse. According to the prophets, Babylonians came. Two prophets, Jeremiah in Jerusalem and Ezekiel from Babylon, because he was one of the early deportees in Babylon, were prophesying that, um, that they should uh, yield to Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument of God, this judgment was of God, it would last 70 years, and so forth. And um, they wouldn't. Um, they, they rebelled. And this was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and took Jeconiah, 
took him away in change and put his uncle Zedekiah in charge and uh, as a vassal king and went back home. Well, Zedekiah gets on the same ego trip. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are telling Zedekiah, don't make that mistake. If you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. Right now it's a vassal, it's subject to Babylon, but it's still there. If you keep messing around, Nebuchadnezzar is going to level this place. Well, they wouldn't listen. But as they're prophesying, Jeremiah has this interesting prophecy in verse, chapter 34, verse 4 and 5. Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus saith the Lord of thee, Thou shalt not die by the sword, but thou shalt die in peace, and with the burnings of thy fathers and former kings which were before thee, so shall they burn odors for thee, and they will lament thee, saying, Ah, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, saith the Lord. This is just an incidental thing in a whole discussion of Jeremiah against Zedekiah. But I notice Zedekiah says, okay, I'm going to die in peace. No problem. Well, he's, Zedekiah is kind of curious because Ezekiel, these two prophets can't get their story straight. Ezekiel in chapter 12, verse 13, also addressing this to about Zedekiah, says, my net, God says through Ezekiel, my net also will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken away in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, and yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. And Zedekiah you know, probably said to these guys, hey, you can't even get your story straight. Well, in 2 Kings 25, verses 6 and 7, we have the history of what actually happened. So Nebuchadnezzar and his gang, they, they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. And when I first encountered that, it gave me chills. Do you realize what, how, how, how precise prophecy is? He didn't, you know, he didn't die by the sword. He says, I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, Ezekiel said, yet he shall not see it. And he literally didn't because he was blinded before he got there. Though he shall die there. He eventually passed away in Babylon. So, you see, God means what he says and says what he means. Verse 36, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations, whither the Lord shall lead thee. You know, many people, when they visit the Middle East, and they visit Israel, especially in the old days, they can't understand what all the fuss is about. Here's a land that is so barren, desert. Who wants to live there? All you have to do is look at the Bible and find out why it's barren. Because it's the subject of them not... Now it's interesting, we're in a beginning of a regathering. As Israel gets back in there, the land is starting to be blessed, flourishing. They're the second largest fruit exporter. The little tiny country, one-third the size of San Bernardino County, County in California, is the uh, uh, second largest, maybe first or second fruit exporter in the world. They sell flowers to Holland. Can you imagine? Uh, if you fly over a plane, everything west of the Jordan is just green and lush. It looks like a Garden of Eden. It's, 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 it's an astonishment the other way these days. Anyway, verse 38, Thou shalt carry much seed out in the field, thou shalt gather but little in, for the locusts shall consume it. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. 
Thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coast, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with oil, for thine olive shall cast his fruit. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. All thy trees and fruit of thy land shall be shall the locusts consume. The stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. And he shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. You see the parallelism in the curses? Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee, and shall pursue thee, and overtake thee, till thou be destroyed, because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments, and his statutes which he commanded thee. And they shall be upon thee for a sign, and for a wonder, and upon thy seed forever. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart, for the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger, and in thirst, and in nakedness, and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck, until he have destroyed thee. In my library, I've got two volumes of Josephus, which talks in detail as an eyewitness of the Romans under Titus. And Rome was known as the Iron Kingdom. And uh, it certainly fulfilled the prediction that he will they'll put a yoke of iron on their neck. And uh, we'll go on here. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar and from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flieth. A nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. <laughs> Indeed, Rome, coming from the extreme west, spoke a language, a total, not only a different language, a, a, a language out of a total different language family. See, in, in, in the Semitic languages, you had Hebrew, Aramaic, and others that were similar, but uh, this was different. And um, they, a language they didn't understand. See, our English is based on Latin and the European languages, but uh, uh, the... Uh, Asian, African, Oriental languages have a different, uh, different root, root base altogether. And uh, so it's interesting also that when the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem, that famous in 70 AD, the legions carried a symbol of the eagle. And you can't resist the speculation that a well-taught Hebrew who knew his Torah when he saw the eagle's Surround him, must have screamed, This is it. A nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. But he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle, and the fruit of thy land, until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or increase of thy kind, or flocks of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates. Until thy high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. It's interesting to realize how much of world history was shaped by military technology. And in those early years, with very primitive weapons, the major defense that you had in the city, of course, was a wall. And what you did for years is put all your energy that you could spare that wasn't required to farm the land and so forth into strengthening the walls because your survival and your family, your existences as a people would depend on the, your success at defending yourself 
against the enemies that would someday show up over the hill. And probably every day that went by, you lived in the fear that there'll be some forces of substance show up with the intent of encircling and sieging the town. Apparently, one of the most terrifying experiences of ancient history was to wake up one day, look out over the wall, and discover the Romans were there. Because the Romans had a reputation of just quietly surrounding the entire city, building their own wall, sealing it off, and being prepared to stay for 25 years if necessary and starve them out. And um, you and I can't imagine the trauma of being in a siege where all your food and water is sealed off, where people begin eating their children to survive. Those kinds of things are unthinkable in our imaginations and yet are a matter of history. The, 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 and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates until thy high and fenced walls come down wherein, wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land. He shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land which the Lord thy God hath given thee. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. You can begin to understand why at Masada, the zealots up there in this castle at Masada, when the Roman legions surrounded, they voted, they discussed it, and they chose to commit suicide rather than be taken. And they wanted to do it while there was still plenty of food, so when the Romans came up, they knew it was their choice. They weren't forced to. And they cast lots, and 960 of them committed suicide. One old woman, I think a child, hid, and from them we know the story. When the Romans got up there, they couldn't believe it. The IDF has a swearing-in ceremony where they march up to Masada in a torchlight ceremony, and they swear. Masada will never fall again. Anyway, <clears throat> verse 54, So that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eyes shall be evil towards his brother and toward the wife of his bosom and toward the remnant of his children, which he shall leave, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he shall eat, because he hath nothing left him in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in all thy gates. The tender and delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness. Her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet and toward her children which she shall bear for she shall eat them for want of all the things secretly in the siege and straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, or awesome is probably a better translation, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues of long continuance and sore sicknesses of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. 
Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. And ye shall be left few in number, whereas ye were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because thou wouldst not obey the voice of the Lord thy God. It shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoice over you, to do you good, and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you, and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked from off the land, whither thou goest to possess it. There's comments I could make, but I don't think I need to. It's pretty graphic. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all the people from one end of earth, one end of the earth, even to the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. Boy. In just a few strokes, Moses summarizes the prophecies of the centuries. Among these nations thou shalt find no ease. Neither shall the sole of thy foot have a rest, but the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. And thou shalt fear day and night and shalt have no assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were even. In the even thou shalt say, Would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. The Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships, and by the way thereof, and by, Egypt here I think is used idiomatically, but that's okay. By the way thereof where I speak unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again, and there shall be sold, and ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. I have some pictures here that are a more recent vintage of Europe in the late 30s, early 40s, slave labor, organized for the trains, and the many, many camps that uh, can't even be captured on film in terms of their scope and size. I don't need to identify them. They're all familiar to us in one form or another. We all remember the darkness that was over Europe in the late 30s and early 40s. The crowds, the uh, hangings, the electric fences, the ovens. Each oven can do 4,700 per day and it wasn't enough to keep up with the traffic. Auschwitz's famous gate, Arbach mach frei, work makes you free. The cattle cars. And the bodies. They look like a Renaissance sketch from Dante's Inferno, don't they? The leftover glasses, the leftover shoes, anything that could make merchandise. The children that had experiments put on them while they're alive. On it goes. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. The diaspora and its conclusion in what we call the Holocaust. 
very contemporary, actually very symptomatic of smaller issues all through history, but obviously climaxed in a very real way in the Holocaust in Germany. The Holocaust apparently took one Jew and three on the planet Earth. If you're interested in this area, if you, I encourage you sometime on the Internet, just look up the Holocaust. It's astonishing to see the sites that are there, the pictures that are there, the documents there, the SS reports, how they can't keep up with the traffic, even with all the technology they're trying to apply and so forth, the reality of it. And as you do that, though, you want to read Zechariah 13, 8, and 9. By calling that to an attention on a radio broadcast, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League has labeled me as an anti-Semite. I didn't say it. Zechariah said it. Because the next one is going to take two out of three. It's not the last of it. Daniel mentioned in Daniel 12 that there's a time of trouble such as the world never seen or ever would see again. Jesus quotes from that as being that period that will be the last three and a half years of that seven-year period that we know from Gabriel as the 70th week of Daniel. There is a time coming that's going to make even the Holocaust look pale. As we stand back and we watch the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, again, you wonder, don't they ever learn? And yet we also, if we're sensitive, we can also see it even here in the United States on the rise. And part of the tragedy is that that anti-Semitism emerges within the Christian body because of Augustine and a theology which argues that the Jews were the one that crucified Christ and that somehow the church inherits the promises to Israel and so forth. That, isn't, that is not only bad biblical doctrine, it's an introduction to, and to her, an introduction to all kinds of heresies. It also, you can, you can, you can map the path from, Auschwitz, from, from Augustine to Auschwitz, and it's happening again. Be careful as you read your Bible and understand that Israel, God is not finished with Israel yet. They have a destiny their origins, their ups, their downs, and their destiny are detailed in the Old and New Testament. And Paul spends three chapters in his definitive work, which we call the Book of Romans. Some people call it the Gospel according to Paul. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul hammers again and again, is God finished with Israel? God forbid! And he goes on to talk about their past in chapter 9, their present in chapter 10, their future in chapter 11. We need to understand that. We need, that doesn't mean we need to endorse all Israel's policies. That's not the point. But we should pray for Israel. We need to support them as we can in a humanitarian sense. Um, we're called to do that. They're a special people, and they still are, despite the fact that they are blinded to the reality of their Messiah, which is exactly what, Isaiah, what, what will come up in Deuteronomy, which Isaiah talks about and Paul builds on in chapter 11 of Romans. So... So with that, um, let's stand for a closing prayer, and we'll have a break before the next session. Father, we praise you for who you are, and we thank you that you are a God that delights in making and keeping promises, and we cling to those promises, Father. We thank you that you have 
brought us a deliverance from the law. Jesus Christ, we thank you, Father, that he has fulfilled the law on our behalf. We thank you, Father, you've gone to such extremes to provide a provision for your holiness so that you could also extend to us your grace and love and forgiveness. Oh, we cling to that, Father, and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the incredible gift that you've given us of a Messiah in whom we have full liberty and have access to your throne. We claim that access and ask you, Father, just to help us understand what you would have of us these days and give us through your grace and through the Holy Spirit the ability to walk in such a way as to please you, Father, to return to you that which you deserve, our worship, our wholehearted devotion, and our love. As we commit ourselves this day into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.